We are in Colossians 1, 24 through 29 today as we continue our series about how to make Christ preeminent, not just in your life, but in our church. And we're, we're looking now at what is the purpose of our church. I, I do a lot of weddings as a pastor. That's one of the joys that I get. I get to officiate uh, weddings as, as man and woman come together as husband and wife. It's a beautiful thing. One of the things I've noticed increasingly as every year goes by is weddings get more expensive, more complicated, more elaborate, and therefore the stress on the bride goes up. 99 times out of 100, the, the bridegroom is not stressed. Uh, he, he just needs to show up with a tux on and that's it. But this poor young woman, and maybe her mom, maybe somebody else, uh, have been planning this huge event when that's not their wheelhouse, that's not their strength. And they've been dreaming of their wedding since they were a little girl. And meanwhile, they've been watching movies about weddings and, and TV shows about weddings. And they've gone to their friends' weddings. And they feel like they have to compete with all of these different things. Do you know that the average price of a wedding in the United States in the year 2020 was $19,000? That is a chunk of money, people. And, and it's only gone up since then. And I do two kinds of weddings in, in, in my role as a pastor. I do, I do those kinds of weddings where people rent out a venue and they spend a ton of money and it's a big, big deal. And I do weddings where people show up and say, they, they just say, hey, next week, me and her, we're going to show up. Will you just take us through the vows? And, and what, I, what I say to these brides when they're stressed is, listen, no matter what happens, it's probably not going to be as perfect as you want it to be. There will probably be some little detail that goes wrong. I'll just tell you right off the top. Something will not go the way you want it to go. Maybe, maybe it, it'll, it'll rain you know, hailstones the size of, of house cats uh, on your wedding day. Maybe, uh, maybe the wedding venue will burn down. Or maybe something much more minor. You know, One of the groomsmen shows up late. But here's what I promise you. As long as you are there and, and I'm there and he's there, you're getting married. That's my promise to you. As long as the three of us show up, if nothing else goes right, you're going to be man and wife at the end of the day. And isn't that what matters? And I can see the wheels in their head. They're comforted, but at the same time, they're like, why didn't I just do what those other people did and show up at church and let you do me the vows? And then I have $19,000 in my pocket, but that's another matter. My point is, it's so important to know why you're here, what you're here to do. Otherwise, you get off into things that don't matter. You waste resources, you waste time, you get stressed about things that aren't important. What matters is what matters, and, and everything else can go aside. You may know this if you're in business, if you're in, in certain uh, stratas of the business world, but for about 30 or 40 years now, businesses, major corporations, have spent big money to craft these carefully, carefully crafted mission statements. You might see it when you walk into a particular business. It's in a frame on the wall. Churches do the same thing. A lot of churches have, have labored over what is our purpose as a church. And, and you might see that if you go to a particular church. It's stenciled on the wall or in a frame somewhere. Now, my favorite church mission statement is actually from a church that's not far from here. It's Houston Northwest Church down in the Spring Klein area. Their mission statement, and I quote, is, we exist to make Houston more like heaven by making Houstonians more like Jesus. And I really like that. If you've ever been on I-45 south of Beltway 8, you know that they've got a lot of work to do to make Houston uh, more like heaven, right? It's my favorite city in the world other than Conroe, but yeah, it's not heaven by any means. Now, 
Whether or not a church has a cleverly worded statement like that, it's important that every church knows what it's here for. Because you may not know this. I'll give you a little insight into my life. I get a lot of ideas from people, from members of the church. They'll come to me and say, hey, I think we should do this. I think we should start this program. I think we should, I think we should change the way we do this. I think we should tweak that. And a lot of the ideas are really good. They really are. About about 1% are just totally nuts. And I'm writing a book someday, and don't worry, I won't use your name. But the 99% are good, and most of them I can't use. You know why? Because we can't do everything. There are, there are so many good ideas we can't use, so many good things we can't pursue, because there's one thing we have to stay focused on. And that's what we're going to talk about today. What is the purpose of our church? Why are we here? So what we're doing, we're looking now at the passage in Colossians 1, where Paul tells us what his purpose is as a minister, as an apostle, and his purpose is our purpose. So let's read together. Chapter 1, verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now here's the purpose. He says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So if I had to define what Paul is saying, what his purpose is, what our purpose should be as a church, must be as a church, it's in these words, present everyone mature in Christ. And when I say mature, I don't mean mature in years necessarily. I mean complete. That word mature in Greek means complete. It's the picture of someone who has been born again because they've met Jesus and Jesus says, I don't want to leave you a baby. I want to make you a full-grown adult who is made in my image, a man or woman who lives and acts and thinks and speaks like I did. And that's the work of a lifetime. Paul is saying, my ministry, my work, my life's work is to produce people like that, to present people complete in Christ. Now, if you gave every pastor in America truth serum and you ask him, what is your number one goal as a pastor? What, is, what are you about? You gave them the truth serum and they couldn't say what they're supposed to say. They said what was true. I'm afraid a lot of pastors, pastors would say, my goal is just to keep my members happy because if they're not happy, I'm losing my job. 
And others would say, my goal is for our church to stay alive. We're, we're an older church and we're not reaching anybody new. And so we just, we have to get at least a core of younger people in or we're not going to last another generation. And then you have other pastors who are on the exact opposite end of the spectrum because they're in, in a church that's planted in the right place, in the right neighborhood and, and surrounded by growth. And so they're, they're busting the seams. And their goal is, if they were honest, we want to get as big as possible. We want to get as many people in this place as possible. If that means we're emptying out every other church in town, well, so be it, because that's my job. And there are even some churches who could honestly say, our purpose, our goal, what we are aimed at is reaching people with the gospel, which is wonderful, but even that's not enough. Because you might remember, when Jesus was about to ascend into heaven, at the end of the book of Matthew, first gospel in the Bible, in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 19, we call it today the Great Commission. He said these words to the disciples. He said, therefore go into all the world and make disciples. He didn't say make converts. He didn't say, he didn't say make good Baptists. He didn't say make tithers. He said make disciples. So what does that look like when it happens? Years ago, I went to a, a pastor's conference at Dallas Seminary. I didn't, that wasn't my seminary when I was in my seminary days, but I had seen ads about this conference and all these famous guys were preaching, people I'd read their books and admired, and I went. And today, the only talk I remember from that week was a talk given by somebody I had never heard of before that week. It was a guy named Howard Hendricks. Howard Hendricks, for many, many years, was a professor at that seminary, taught some of the most successful, effective pastors you could name. But he told a story that day that I've never forgotten. He said, years ago, I learned what my goal is in life. He said, I was on an airplane, I was flying to a speaking engagement, and there was a guy sitting three or four rows in front of me who was everybody's worst nightmare for a, for a fellow traveler on an airplane. You know, here you are stuck in this little metal tube. You want everybody to cooperate and, and, and be kind. This guy was just a jerk. He was loud and he was obnoxious and he was rude and he was demanding. And he kept pushing that button that calls the flight attendant, right? And the flight attendant would come down and he had some other complaint. And it was always, always overdone, right? Whatever was wrong, maybe his drink was watered down. Maybe his seat was too warm. Maybe his seat didn't fold back enough or, or his ears were pop, popping or whatever the case might be. It was, it was like it was the biggest thing in the world, and he was so overbearing and demanding. And, and everybody on the plane just wanted to strangle him with his seatbelt. But this flight attendant, and it was always the same one. You could, you could just see the other flight attendants were like, okay, you go again, you go again. And this flight attendant would come down, and every time she had this, this countenance of peace, this, this look on her face of perfect patience, she answered his, his anger with gentleness and kindness. And after a while, you could just see the anger drain out of him because you could see it on his face. He, he suddenly, it suddenly occurred to him, I'm a jerk. This woman is kind and I'm treating her like dirt. I've got to stop. And he was quiet the rest of the way. And so Hendricks raised his hands. When he saw that flight attendant next, he said, ma'am, could you come here? And she did. And he said, I need to know your name because that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And, and I know the president of this airline, and I would love to tell him your name and tell him what a great employee you are. And she said, oh, I don't work for this airline. 
And he just kind of looked at her because she's wearing the uniform, she's doing the job, and she said, oh, don't get me wrong, I, I earn a paycheck, I'm employed by them, but this isn't who I work for. She said, years ago, a few years ago, my, my husband and I, we came to know Jesus Christ and made him our Savior and Lord. And our lives completely changed. And we decided that day that from now on, we wanted to make sure we represented him well everywhere we went. That, that we, were, we were putting him first in all things and showing people what he really is. And so, for instance, this morning when my husband drove me to the airport, before I got out of the car, he put a hand on my shoulder and we prayed together that whatever happened up here in the air, that, that I would represent Jesus well. And she said, and so, you know, I, I'm just trying my best to, to bring glory to him. And then she walked away. And Hendrick said, it, it occurred to me then, no matter how many books I write or, or lectures I give or sermons I preach, I'm supposed to be producing people like her. That's the goal. That's it. It's not about numbers or earthly success. It's about making people like that. And he's right. Because if churches like ours produce people like that, we won't need to worry about how to reach our community. We won't need to worry about how to share the gospel. It'll just happen. Because the world is looking for salt and light, and that's what it looks like. That's the purpose of the church. Now, what does it take to produce people like that? Paul should know. If you look at Paul's ministry in the Bible, you see that following after Paul were all these famous names, people like Timothy and Luke and Priscilla and Aquila and Epaphras and Silas and Phoebe and right on down the line, these were the people that changed the world because God worked through Paul to minister, to, to witness, to invest in them. So how did he do it and what should we do? What does it take to present every person complete? Four things that we see in verses 28 through 29. Number one is preach Christ. That's it. He says in the first words of verse 28, him we proclaim. It's talking about Jesus. Remember last week we saw uh, the great Christological hymn, how Jesus is the one. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He created all things. He died for our sins on the cross. He defeated death. He is the firstborn from the dead. Therefore, we're not afraid of death. He ascended into heaven. He still is the one who sustains the earth every day, and he is coming back someday to judge the living and the dead. And Paul says, and he's our main message. He's the subject of every sermon, every Bible study, every song. That's a commitment that you have from us as a ministry staff. I mean, Robert, Nathan, and I, uh, when we plan worship, that's one thing you need to know is every song we sing is going to be about Jesus. Are there other great songs that people sing that we probably enjoy singing in other environments? Absolutely. But we're not going to sing them here. When we preach, whether it's me or whether it's somebody else on staff or somebody from outside, when your life group leader gets up to lead a Bible study, and there are life group leaders in this room, I, I trust they agree with me on this. The subject is Jesus. Because Jesus is the hero of Scripture, and every lesson, every sermon is going to be drenched with scripture based on scripture. Do we have other things we could talk about? Hey, I think you figured out by now, I, I don't mind talking. I, I'm, I'm okay at putting words together and I've got opinions on a variety of subjects. I, I would, I'd be happy to talk about the way I think the next election should go all the way down to, to who should be starting at catcher for the Astros. I mean, I got opinions, but my opinions plus $2 won't even buy you a cup of coffee at Starbucks. 
Nobody's getting saved by my opinions or yours. Jesus is the one that saves. God's word is the one that changes lives. So that's what you're going to get here. That's what you must get. Part of it is we're only together for a few hours a week. Why would we waste time talking about anything else in those few hours? So I have two goals for every sermon. You can grade me on these. Number one, every week I want you to be able to leave and say, this is what I need to do. This is one step of obedience I need to take, one change I need to make, one, one way God is changing the way I think. And number two, that you would hear the gospel again. Now, some of you, I don't know your journey. Many of you, I do. And so I don't know, some of you, whether you have come into the family of faith, whether you've made the decision that that husband and wife made that I talked about earlier to change their lives and give their lives to Christ. And if not, you can do so today. But you need to know that it's not about being a good person and it's not about coming to church more often. It's, it's, it's about recognizing that the God of, of heaven and earth gave his life to you in the form of Jesus Christ, dying on a cross, taking your place, taking the punishment for your sins so you could be forgiven and that the third day he rose from the dead. And that's how you get saved, by trusting in that, by trusting in him. But the rest of us need to hear the gospel every week too because whatever we're facing whether it's my own sin that I can't seem to get over, whether it's discouragement, whether it's, whether it's doubts, whether it's whatever the world can throw at me, I need to remember that the hope is in Jesus and that comes from the gospel. So every week you're going to hear about Christ crucified and Christ risen and salvation coming by grace alone. Him we proclaim. We preach Christ. Number two, we major on people. Verse 28, in verse 28, you might have noticed Paul uses the word everyone a lot, actually three times in one sentence. We teach everyone, we warn everyone, that we may present everyone complete in Jesus. And why is Paul using that same word so many times? He wants us to understand that people are the mission. That Jesus didn't die for institutions and governments and, 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 and programs. Jesus died for people. Every single person you meet is someone that God had great dreams for when he created them, someone that Jesus died for and is passionate about winning. Every single one. Everyone matters. There's a, a statement that we believe in. We, we crafted this one ourselves. We didn't have any consultants or anything. Maybe it's not quite as snappy as some, but you've probably heard this if you've been here long enough. Here it goes. This is our vision statement. We work alongside the Spirit of God to bring peace to chaos in our community, one heart, one family at a time. Now, those words are meaningful to us because when we look at our community, when we look at our world, we see a lot of chaos, a lot of things that are out of control. And, and our job is not to ignore that or run from it, but to bring peace. That's the Hebrew word shalom. That means not just an absence of noise, but when things come back together and, and are the way they should be. We're supposed to be bringing peace to chaos and, and one heart, one family at a time, which means the people matter. We, while we were crafting this whole statement, one thing we kept saying to each other, it's people, not programs. Our church has programs and will continue to do so, and that's part of my job is to, is to oversee those, but it's not about the programs, it's about the people. And, and the way we hope to accomplish that is through what we call transforming relationships. 
And that's a word we made up three years ago to, to refer to any time uh, one of God's people chooses to invest in someone else who they don't need to invest in. I mean, it's not a member of your family. It's not your closest friend. It's somebody out there who's struggling. And you say, I'm going to do what I can to help you meet your needs. I'm going to do what I can to show you the love of Christ. And we hope to do 10,000 of those, to facilitate 10,000 of those by the year 2030 and just see what God can do. Because there's two reasons why we have that, that mindset, okay? Some people would say, well, why don't you just pool your resources and, and rent, out, uh, rent out Moorhead Stadium and, and, and put a gospel preacher on the 50-yard line and, and just preach the gospel? Hey, that's the way it's been done in past years, and it worked. These days, though, there are two things I know. Number one, our greatest resource, aside from the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, is the people sitting in these pews. Because whether you know it or not, there are people all around you who are a lot like that flight attendant. People who I think are are remarkable, who are living the life the way it should be lived, and, and we need to get them in contact with the people out there who need to hear. But secondly, this is how people are getting saved today. There's a reason why churches don't do big revival crusades anymore. There's a reason why churches don't go around knocking on doors much anymore. It's because culture has changed. And now people are much less likely to hear the gospel from a stranger, especially a guy behind a pulpit. And they're much more likely to hear it from someone they actually know, whose life they can see and observe, who can win credibility, who can actually show, I care about you. And that's how people are coming to know Christ. That's why, that's why we major on people. Number three, if we're going to present every person perfect in Christ, we have to work hard. And I mean we, not just I. We need to work hard. The church is considered the body of Christ. It's over and over again in the Scriptures. You know what happens when you have a body and there are certain parts of that body that just quit working? That is a body that is in distress. That is a body that is, that is not able to fully function. And that's the picture of most churches today. Churches that might have high-functioning parts, but most of the body doesn't work. It's just sitting. Most of the members don't know, what's my role? What should I be doing? Or if they do know, they're not doing it. Look at what Paul says in verse 29. He uses two interesting terms. First, he says, for this we toil. That word toil is a Greek word that refers to either taking a beating or working so hard that you're exhausted at the end of the day. Guys, this is going to sound like the worst sales job ever, but I I have to tell you the truth. When you decide, I'm going to get off of the pew and get into some kind of service for the Lord, I'm going to actually use my gifts and my calling, whether in this church, within this building, or out there in the world, I'm going to serve the Lord in some way. Your life will not get easier as a result. God's not going to just sprinkle sunshine and rainbows. In fact, one of the things that will happen often when you get involved in ministry, you'll realize I'm catching a lot more criticism now than I ever did when I was just sitting on my rear end. Nobody criticized me back then. But now that I'm actually doing something, everyone thinks they know better than I do how I should be doing it. And and I'll be honest, it's very humbling because if, if you're willing to listen, I can speak from experience as a pastor, a lot of the critics can be right. They can say things and you'll be like, you know, they've got a point. 
And others are, are, are probably not right, but they're doing their best and they hurt your feelings even though they don't mean to. And some really want to bring you down a peg because they don't like seeing someone doing something they know they should be doing. It's easy to get discouraged. You're catching criticism, some valid, some not. You're not seeing the kind of results you thought. You're pressed for time. You're wondering, why did I ever start this? Paul says, that's part of it, but don't give up. For this we toil. This is the purpose. Someday we're going to stand before Jesus. We want to be able to say, Lord, here's this person I've brought with me. We want to be able to say, our church was about more than just gathering on Sundays. For this we toil, he says. And then he says, struggling, or other versions say laboring. It's the Greek word agonizomai. The reason I say that is not so you can be impressed with my amazing Greek, uh, uh, I can't even say the word now, Uh, pronunciation. Yeah, there you go. Aren't you impressed? Uh, I say it because it sounds like the English word agonize because they're linked. Paul says, for this, I am agonizing. It's a word that you would use for going into battle or for getting ready for a boxing match. And what he's saying is, now's the time to serve. Don't wait until it's convenient. And I don't know where you are. I I don't know most of you well enough to be able to diagnose you. But if you're not presently serving in ministry, I can probably guess some of the reasons why. Some of you would say, my kids are really little right now. They're into a lot of stuff. That's my focus now. When they get a little older, then I'll serve the Lord. Others of you might say, my my work is super busy right now, but eventually I'm going to reach that stage where I'm calling the shots for myself and, and then I'll serve. And others of you would say, I've just got tons of, of plates spinning on those sticks and I got to keep those, those plates spinning. And, and once life slows down a little bit and others of you are like, well, right now I'm just really tired. And when I get my energy back, then I will serve. And I'm here to tell you, if you're waiting for that time when it becomes convenient to serve God, it will never happen. It will never happen. Anybody ever tried to get in shape? Don't raise your hand. But anybody ever try to get in shape and, and, and you say, uh, you wake up, you know, the alarm goes off and you're like, I just, I'm just not feeling it today. Just, yeah, didn't sleep well last night. Uh, I'm still, I'm still uh, digesting that bluebell from last night or whatever. You have to get up. You have to get out there or you're never going to get in shape. It's the same with serving the Lord. You have to just serve. Don't wait for it to be convenient. Don't wait for it to be easy. And and that brings to to the last point. We we need to preach Christ. We need to major on people. We need to work hard, but we need to pray harder. Paul, after he says, "I'm, I'm laboring, I'm struggling, he then says, with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul says, I can work hard, but it won't make a difference unless the power of God is on my side. And the power of God is only on my side when I pray first. See, Paul knew by experience, he could testify. There was a time when he could say, I am the hardest working Jew in Jerusalem. Nobody serves God with more zeal than me. Think about it. There were lots of people in Jerusalem that didn't believe in Jesus, but Paul was the only one who was willing to resort to violence. He was the only one willing to kick in doors and drag Christian men and women into prison to try to stop the Christian movement. And then all of a sudden, he runs smack into Jesus on the road to Damascus and realizes, I am working really hard against God. I have to stop. 
See, it's kind of the worst nightmare is that you will give your life to something that is the wrong thing. So Paul says, from now on, I'm going to pray about everything. And you see it in his letters. In every one of his letters, at least once or twice, he says, let me tell you what I'm praying for you right now. And there are these beautiful, eloquent prayers. But what you notice when you read them is he's not praying just for the things we pray for. We stop at things like, we'll heal his body, give her a new job, bless their marriage, all of which is great, all of which we should be praying for. But Paul doesn't stop there. Paul prays for transformation of their character, transformation of their communities, their homes, their families. Let me just leave you with this story, and then we're done. I wish I could remember the name of this church, it was, it was in an article I read uh, written by this church's pastor probably 25 years ago. But in the city of Chicago, in one of those neighborhoods, like in any major city, there are neighborhoods where you would not want to be alone. A neighborhood that was literally ruled by a street gang. They were sat this little church full of mostly older people, mostly not the same uh, race as the people they were trying to reach. And, and like so many churches in that, in that situation, they didn't know what to do. They didn't have the money to move to another neighborhood with people more like them, and they furthermore didn't think that was what they should do. So all they knew to do was pray. So what they started doing was prayer walking the community. And every night they would send out teams of people, two by two or three by three, to just walk. And as they walked, to pray for people they saw, to pray for houses they passed, businesses they passed. And if they saw someone on the street, they would walk up to them and say, hey, we're from that church over there. We're praying for our neighborhood. How can I pray for you? And and many of the people they saw would be these young men wearing those gang colors. And they had to screw up their courage and and not walk the other way, but just go straight up to these young men and say, I want to pray for you. And to their surprise, most of these young men would say, yeah, you can pray for my little brother. He he got beat up on the playground the other day, or my, my sister, her ex-boyfriend is, won't leave her alone, or my, my, my mom lost her job and we can't pay the bills, or my grandma's in the hospital. And then they had the wonderful opportunity, the next time they saw that young man on the street, they'd say, hey, tell me how your grandma's doing. Tell me how your little brother's doing. They did this for years. Meanwhile, every time somebody in that neighborhood would get shot or stabbed or, or die, they would they would go to that site as soon as they heard about it. And they would bring this big flatbed trailer and they'd set up a a portable sound system and a guitar and drums and a couple of microphones and they'd have just an impromptu worship service right there and they'd pray for that family and they'd pray for that person who was injured or killed. And the, the people in the neighborhood started to understand, this is what happens. This is what the church does. And so whenever there was an, uh, an act of violence, the neighborhood would just spontaneously show up for the worship service. And they were reaching way more people there than they were on Sunday morning in the pews. And it took years, but eventually that neighborhood became totally gang-free. Not through anything the police did or the National Guard, but simply through the power of prayer. Now, folks, I think we way, way, way undersell what God wants to do through a local church like ours in a much less daunting situation. We look at our our world, our culture, and there is a lot of chaos. And we see so many ways in which those who lead our culture seem to be leading it the opposite direction 
then we know God wants us to go. And there's this tendency among Christians to say, oh gosh, we just need to hunker down and weather out this storm. We just need to hold on to what we have so the world doesn't taint it. And God did not mean for us to shelter from the storm. He meant for us to go out into it. God did not mean for us just to hold on to what we have. God meant for us to change our communities in the name of Christ. And we can do that if we preach Him, if we major on people, if we work hard and pray harder. We can do it.